Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Tim McIntosh and Angelina Stanford. Yeah, I just switched it up. I know. Why? What? It's like a dagger to my heart when you do that. I gotta, I gotta be. My, my heart is warm and fluffy at that mention. <laughs> okay, but we we all know who the fragile one is here, Tim. Come on, I gotta take what I can get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you like. If you're like admitting you're fragile to manipulate in someone into giving you things, it's like it's just kind of a, it's just kind of. Wow! Did you just accuse me of man- trying to? Man- I don't manipulate. It's not. I don't know. It's like a different sort of fragility. She bullies. <laughs> she, yeah. she emotionally bullies. I just straight up bully. I'm so like, like, I am disconnecting this call because I was not said first. Boom. Goodbye. Like so, then Tim and I will just talk. Uh, yeah. Like uh, like Julian, you you you're a bully like Julian. In, in everything that rises this must converge. because I texted you that I had a shiny new penny for you, isn't it? You're getting back at <laughs> Yeah, something like that, yeah. So, uh, and if you're not careful, Tim's going to hit you over the head. Um, so, <laughs> I'm, feeling it. He, I'm feeling his narrow glance. I'm feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> over the interwebs. So, uh, what's going on with you guys? Anything new? Anything new going on? Any, any, how's the weather? Anything you want to just put forward at the beginning of this conversation? Spring is beginning to spring in Eugene. I just made a little poem. I'm moderately proud of that. It's, it goes back and forth between the kind of like gray sputtering clouds and like these bright, shiny, moderately warm days. I love it. You know, you can't just repeat a bunch of similar words and then say it's a poem, right? Well, it uh, rhymes, yeah. though. Yes, you can. <laughs> I mean, it's not I a poem it's if I say. Modern literature. It's not a poem if I say I'm going to weather the cold weather by thinking of warmer weather. But the third, the third word rhymed. Spring, spring, Eugene. That was the moment. That was the <laughs> Phoenix moment when it uh, rose from being a mundane, mm-hmm. repeated word poem to something truly transcendent. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, we'll let our listeners decide on this one. Uh, <laughs> I would prefer them not to. <laughs> so uh, we are here to talk about Flannery O'Connor's Everything That Rises Must Converge. That, of course, is the name of the collection, but is also the name of the first story in the collection. Um, if you, uh, I'll just go ahead and get this out of the way. If you are reading from the collection itself, the one that has the eight stories in it, then, uh, you will know that the next one coming up is Greenleaf. So we'll go with that one next. If you have the full collection, I don't, I don't know exactly where it falls in the order of, of the complete stories. I didn't check. Well, the complete stories are arranged chronologically, so it is a different order. Yeah. So, um, of course this book was published posthumously, but almost all the stories were written while she was still alive. They weren't collected into, into uh, a, that's the a best sentence I have ever heard. 
Almost he all of a, them were written mistake. while they were made still a mistake. alive. <laughs> My favorite ones are the ones she wrote when she was dead. They're like transcendent. Um, yeah, of course I meant published. Um, they were published. I mean, sometimes I will say sometimes people people have partially written things that then are finished by somebody else. Oh, totally. That so, was true about Dorothy Sayers. I'm just giving you a hard time. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm just, you know being silly so yeah most of them were published while she was still alive but then it wasn't collected into a whole collection until uh, until you know after she had died and i don't she did approve the title while she was still alive interestingly i I don't think that judgment day was was published when she was still alive i think that was actually after after she had died even like even in a even in a magazine or whatever um, but before we jump into uh, in, into talking about this story, um, we've got a few things to talk about. Uh, make sure you head over to our Facebook page uh, and join the conversation over there. It's been lively as always. The name of that is just the Close Reads Discussion Group, Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group. So you can hit the hit the hit up the search bar on Facebook and type those words in, and it should take you where you need to go. And of course. Please do subscribe. Uh, either subscribe to the podcast network or to the feed for this show. You can do that on iTunes or Stitcher or Podcast Addict or Addict or whatever that's called. Uh, any any places you can get podcasts, you can generally subscribe to one of those two feeds. And of course, I say it every week. Please do leave a review, either a starred review or a comment review, and let us know how we're doing. And uh, you know, help us help us keep producing content. Um, one other thing, though, I want to talk about. So it's March, right? It's March 3rd mm-hmm. today as we're recording. This is going to run on March 7th. And uh, that means that it's March Madness time, just about. And during March Madness, of course, it's all about basketball. It's about you know seeing who wins the national championship. And uh, we all fill out brackets at that time. So in about two weeks' time, no, actually about mm, nine days' time, the bracket will be out and everyone will be filling them out. Tim, I know you're a big basketball fan, so I'm guessing you'll I be am. filling a bracket out. I will. And um, there's another bracket for non-basketball fans to fill out, and that's the bracket that we do every year regarding Wait, literature. We're doing this again? Oh, yeah. Putting my boxing gloves on, Dave. So, Let's do this. So this year, it's it's launching. If you're listening to this on the 7th, the, uh, the bracket, the first round of the bracket, the voting will open at 10 a.m. on the 7th. So it's probably open by the time you're listening to this. The first round will go from Monday to Thursday. And the, this year, the theme or the the, the – things that we're voting on are children's literature so it's the children's literature challenge and we chose so you mean a category in which one could actually legitimately vote for anne of green gables now (laughs) (laughs) yes i'm still bitter (laughs) correct yes you may You, you you can in fact you probably will um but what we have uh done is we have selected 32 children's books now we have some parameters and I'm just going to go over those real quickly here. And then we'll talk about a few. And I want to get your feedback before we jump into Flannery O'Connor. So I, I think this is going to be a fun one. So these are the parameters. No picture books. Uh, no collections. So Or no mm-hmm. series. So you can't say we didn't put all of the Chronicles of Narnia in. Or all of um, the, the Little House on the Prairie books. So we chose... Or Harry Potter. Well, okay. So that's true. So but that's another parameter. So... Um, we also said that no books that are less than 20 years old. So that discounts Harry Potter. So we did that just because it's hard to... I don't to, know. Is it's Harry hard Potter to, not 20 years old? first one came out in 97, I think. Mm. 
Puts us right there at the edge. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the other thing with Harry Potter is what we decided is that with the series, like the Chronicles of Narnia, for example, you have to choose a single book or two that rep- that are most representative as kind of this of the series or of you know standalone novels, standalone books. And what we decided was there was not one single Harry Potter book that was like stood alone aside from all the other ones in the way that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe does, for example. I would totally so, agree with that. We chose, so this is kind of what we thought Same of. thing with, like, Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, how could you possibly pick well, one of those? Right. So what we did was we said, I mean, Lord of the Rings, we kind of considered, we didn't consider a children's book. So we chose The Hobbit, but we didn't choose a Lord of the, anything from The Lord of the Rings. And what we said was the parameters would be that you would read it aloud to a 5- to 8-year-old, or you would let a 9- to 12-year-old roughly read it themselves. So, for example, we did not do most young adult novels. Like, we didn't do The Giver or, like, To Kill a Mockingbird because those have things in them that you may not want your 10-year-old to read to themselves. Sure. Uh, you might read To Kill a Mockingbird to a 10-year-old out loud because you can skip things. But, I mean, there's, like, rape and stuff like that in it and, like, lots of issues with race. And some people, that's a gray area for that one. And that book, like The Once in Future King, for example, is a book that is most often read, most commonly read, like, ninth, 10th grade, right? 8th, ninth, 10th grade. So what we ended up with was 32 books. Now, there's going to be debate because obviously we left certain books out that people love. I'm, uh, that's inevitable. I don't know how to, I don't know how to keep that from, from happen, happening. Um, so, but you love controversy. So did you throw in some intentional controversial choices just to get us worked up? <laughs> oh, I'm going to take that as a yes. I do, <laughs> I do not love controversy. What are you talking about? <laughs> so what we did is we divided it into eight to four groups of eight. So eight times four is 32, obviously. So in one side, you have, um, in one of the eights, you have uh, the matchup of The Hobbit is up against the Phantom Tollbooth. Winnie the Pooh is up against A Wrinkle in Time. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is up against Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And Peter and the Pan, Peter Pan, is up against King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, the Roger Lancel and Green one. So that's a fun Dude, little group. Dude, that's brutal. That's brutal. And then, yep, and then we, and so in the bottom left bracket then, we have the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe up against the Bronze Bow. Anne of Green Gables, this is, this is going to be a rough one for some people. Anne of Green Gables up against Charlotte's Web. Oh my goodness, David. Um, Pinocchio up against the Wizard of Oz. And Little Britches up against Swiss Family Robinson. And before I go on, I'll just say that we didn't, we didn't purposely try to set up books that are of like categories or have like audiences. We just sort of, it was sort of somewhere between randomized and seeded. Sort of. So um, yeah. it, we didn't we don't like post the seeds because we don't want them to influence how people vote. But um, it just kind of worked out that way. And then some of the matchups are just juicy. So we left them. So then in the top right bracket, if you're looking at the bracket when you go to vote, it'll be Little House in the Prairie um, up against The Yearling. Secret Garden up against Heidi. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland up against The Jungle Book. And Farmer Boy up against Black Beauty. And then the bottom right, you'll have... Uh, the Wind in the Willows up against Where the Red Fern Grows. Uh, R- the Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, the Howard Pyle version, up against Watership Down. Treasure Island. Oh, Treasure-, <laughs> Treasure Island up against Caddy Woodlawn. And The Little Princess up against The Princess and the Goblin. So there are definitely some things that got left out. Like uh, we could have, you know, we only chose one Roald Dahl novel. We only chose one of the EB, uh, the, um, the, E.B. White novels. We, we only chose Charlotte's Web. We had Stuart Little on the list for a while, and we left it out. We didn't choose The Trumpet of the Swan because The Trumpet of the Swan is terrible. And just, I'm just kidding. Um, we we debated a lot of books like The Railway Children. Um, 
We debated the Beatrix Potter books, but decided they're both picture books and collections, so that doesn't really fit. We debated um, Old Yeller and Sarah Plain and Tall, and there's all kinds of books that we we, we debated. Oh, I love Old Yeller. Oh Me yeah. Too. So what we decided was that um, that book, when we when we kind of did a straw poll of some people, some friends that have little kids, that most of the time they see that they don't they've never read the book, but they think of the movie with Fest Parker. Oh yeah. So that kind of colored that one to where we were like, there's it, we had to choose another book that maybe is a little more iconic and remembered for the book itself. Hmm. So the old, old Yeller, I read out loud to my kids years ago. And that was a very strange experience, you know, to read out loud while sobbing. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, well, and well, we also debated where the Redfern girls or old Yeller. Cause they're both kind of like sad dog books and the voting kind of went pretty overwhelmingly to where the Redfern grows. So we just kind of went with that. That's a, that was a tough choice. Huh. Um, and and it was tough to leave out some of the more modern ones because you've got some really good books. I mean, you've got um, uh, like we left Bridge to Terabithy is another one that's not newer, but we left that one out. Um, the, I know that's going to be one that people are going to ask about. Um, but there's uh, who who wait, what's her name? Kate D. Camillo, I think is her name. She wrote because mm-hmm. of, you know she wrote she's written a lot of stuff. The Tale of Despero and those are pretty beloved. But um, we figured that the way to to, to kind of like separate books is the test of time and you know kind of a you know makes sense given who we are and all that um and josh gibbs would approve um if you've if you've read his posts about that so um this is a pretty fun list head over to um to vote just head over to uh circeinstitute.com slash uh children's lit um and you'll be able to find that that bracket there and you can vote and the vote the first round voting will go till thursday and then the second round and so forth so it'll be fun to see in the second round you could end up with a um lion the witch in the wardrobe and a green gables matchup that'll be interesting that will be interesting i feel my blood boiling already in anticipation of this or little house in the prairie straight up um versus the farmer boy in the second round and then um, the little princess up against the wind and the willows in the second round. Like I could see those being interesting matchups. The secret garden up against Alice in Wonderland. Like that could be could be interesting. Um, Winnie the Pooh maybe up against Forge of the Dawn Treader. That'll be interesting. Um, but I have no idea. Sometimes I like we did one of the great books a couple of years ago, and we had we were pretty we were pretty sure the Iliad or the Odyssey was going to be in the final pairing, you know. But I have no idea how this one's going to go, and I think part of it is because. With children's literature, the nostalgia plays an incredibly yeah, large part. Yeah, absolutely part. Right. So it's hard to judge. Is someone going to feel more nostalgia about reading Charlotte's Web as opposed to Anne of Green Gables? Yeah, as you were reading the titles, I was thinking about that. I'm thinking about we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's the criteria by people, which people are going to vote? Because as you were saying up some of those pairings, I was thinking to myself, well, I think one is actually a better example of literature and art, but mm-hmm. I also don't know that kids connect to it as much as you know some. So yeah, it just really depends how you how you define it. Yeah. So by for, what criteria you're voting? Yeah. So for example, the Yearling is a really interesting one because that's a that's a classic book, but it's not read as much now. So maybe people that have kids that are my kids age or that are people that are my age. I don't think I read that and I haven't read to my kids, but my mom who's a third grade teacher and is obviously much older than I am insisted that that's a book that should be on the list, that it's one of the all timers. And, um, so I, it'll be interesting to see if it breaks down by, you know, by age and by 
just by that nostalgia factor is what did you read when you were a kid and then also yeah, i've never read that i've never read that what will factor in more this was this was the one i was interested in will it be will it factor in your own remembrance of what it was like to read a book when you were a kid or the degree to which your children like a book mm. so for example charlie and the chocolate factory if you read that when you were a kid and loved it but your kids don't love it which one is going to influence you more do you think so I, well, then, and there's this too. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of homeschool moms who are like me, where I didn't read any of these books as a kid. I read them all as an adult to my uh, children. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And so, and so, I don't have, I don't have any category for what would I have thought of this as a kid. Yeah, yeah. As a kid, I was just obsessively reading Greek mythology and Arabian fairy tales. Hmm. So all of the yeah. classic children's literature. You, I didn't read you don't say. Really, comes as a great shock. <laughs> so, so we actually talked about should we have, for example, um, like Andrew Lang's Fairy Tales or the Delaire's Book of Greek Myths or one of those collections of the Shakespeare the the Shakespeare stories where they took the the plays and turned them into kind of short stories. Um, what is, what are their names? I can't remember. But Charles Lamb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we decided not to because they're kind of the collections. So maybe we're gonna do another mini mini bracket where we do collections and. You know, because even if you look at like Hans Christian, Christian Andersen's stories, there's pretty great, pretty big variety in terms of the quality of them. So some of them are just a lot better. So it's hard to hard to judge um, a collection of Hans Christian Andersen's stories up against, say, Anne of Green Gables. They're just such different things. So we kind of we kind of skipped out on those. We took the easy way out. <laughs> um. So and what I figure is each each time we have a show after a round, we should quickly quickly spend a few minutes reviewing the matchups and letting you guys vent about what you think should have won. David, do you, have you thought about doing us doing a close reads on the winner or one of the final four? That is a great idea. If we have now, if we have not done, if it's not wind in the willows, if it's not the wind in the willows, we right, should, we right. should definitely spend after this one, after uh, Flannery O'Connor, we should do the winner. I think that's a great idea. I love that, that idea. That is a great idea. Okay, so now you have to think when you vote that you're really voting on what's the next close read. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Please don't let it be something that I don't want to read. Um, <laughs> Please don't make it be Anna Green Gables. <laughs> no, hey, no Anna the Green Gables would be actually probably a fun one to discuss anyway. But please don't make it be a book that I just read to my kids. <laughs> um, actually, that might be easier because I won't have to read it again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's talk about Flannery O'Connor now that I've wasted, you know, 10 minutes. Let's uh, talk about Flannery about O'Connor. Um, we got a lot of interesting com- com- uh, comments leading into this on, on the Facebook group. A lot of people saying, my first experience was fl- with Flannery O'Connor was, was uh, I don't know what the consensus word would be, but but rough. Like I, confusing. People said, confusing. I didn't get her. It was difficult. Yeah. It was challenging. It was seemed dark. All those kind of comments that you get. And those are the similar things you're going to get from students. Uh, typically after they and first read a story. And contemporary literary critics who didn't know what to make of her first novel. <laughs> I mean, we're in good company if we're confused, apparently. Well, yeah, I mean... Her editor, her editor the first editor that she had lined up for Wise Blood mm-hmm. wanted her to make pretty significant changes, and it, it's pretty clear he did not understand the book. So, mm-hmm. and that's his job. And if he's having a hard time understanding the book, it would make sense that... And yeah, readers would have a hard time understanding the book. I, I will say, I think that there's a degree to which, you know, sometimes great books are just challenging and that it's okay for them to be difficult to understand. But I think that 
it's I think there's an argument to be made that O'Connor is actually a better short story writer than she's a, than she is a novelist, and that some I of the some of her flaws as a novelist show up pretty dramatically in Wise Blood. Um, and that that leads well, to some, to some of the confusion. Work, yeah. Well, yeah, she'd written a couple of stories. I think she was 23 or 24 when she wrote Wise Blood, something like that. Well, and, and you know, what else is really interesting? This really surprised me because like you, David, I think of her primarily as a short story writer. I, I, I think of her as like a master of that genre, honestly. And definitely. So I'm reading in preparation for today's show that she really thought of herself as a novelist and she wrote the short stories as a break from writing the novels. Mm hmm. Well, isn't that whole, something? I it's do, like thinking Shakespeare thought he was going to make his money as a poet rather than a playwright. Exactly. Like, ah, just, I, like yeah, I got I to pay the bills. Let me let me crank out another hammer. Yeah. Or, or, or if like uh, some screenwriter thought of themselves as a novelist, who but mm-hmm. they paid the bills. They maybe they're more famous now for the screenwriting, but they actually prefer mm-hmm. to be a novelist. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Steven Stilgerg's like my Instagram account. If people would just appreciate that, I can take good pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, I think *The Violent Bared Away*, her second novel, is far superior to *Wise Blood*. But *Wise Blood* has a like there is an energy about it that is, I think, is what has made it last. That's made it something that people go back to, even though it's confusing and a little bit um, convoluted from a narrative perspective. And maybe we can talk more about that as we go along at some point. But we are here to talk specifically about everything that rises must converge. And um, Angelina, when was the first time, if, if you can recall, when you when you read this story? Do you do you have any recollection? I actually do know this because I had never heard of Flannery O'Connor, but I had very much attached myself in college to a professor that uh, she did absolutely become my mentor. And uh, she she taught a Flannery O'Connor class, so I took it because I took everything she taught. I had absolutely no clue what I was walking into. So I'm sitting here with the syllabus in front of me. I mean, I can tell you the date that I read this story. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. So I read it. I read it in uh, in college as part of a Flannery O'Connor class. And and what was your first impression, if you remember? Well, you know, modern literature is not really my thing. And so it, I definitely felt like I was in foreign waters, but I, I liked it. And I was I was drawn to her. And uh, I was I we started off the class reading um, Mystery and Manners. And that ended up just being profoundly influential on me. It was the first time mm-hmm. that I felt like I was encountering somebody who was really wrestling with what it meant to be a Christian artist. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to a an evangelical Christian high school where, you know, I, I was so deeply turned off by what I considered to be Christian pop subculture, you know, mm-hmm. and and I, I remember just spending all this time thinking that this this can't be it. This can't be what Christian art is. We can't be just trying to have a a, a really mediocre copy of what's going on in, in the world. Or And I really was deeply opposed to the idea that something had to have an explicit gospel message, quote unquote in order to be Christian, especially when I felt like people were going out of their way to make sure there was an explicit gospel message. And that was at the sacrifice of making good music or, or movie or, you know, whatever it was. So when we read mystery and manners, this was the first time that I encountered like a rigorous intellectual artistic argument for Christian art. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was invigorated by it, challenged by it. I mean, I'll even, well, I don't know. This might be opening up a huge can of worms, so I'll go for it. Uh, I also grew up in a denomination that was extraordinarily anti-Catholic and had been taught since a young age that Catholics were not Christians. 
And I had a serious crisis when I read Mystery and Manners because I literally said to myself, if this woman's not a Christian, I don't know what a Christian is. (laughs) So she just, she challenged me on every level on being a Christian writer on, on, on Catholic uh, faith, just Hmm. challenged me in in a number of ways. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed being challenged. I I didn't enjoy it. Like, you know, like I'm sitting down with pride and prejudice. You know, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I've read Flannery O'Connor 11 times. (laughs) I've read wise blood once and I'm not sure I've recovered. (laughs) (laughs) So, so uh, for those that don't know, mystery and manners is a book of O'Connor's essays. Um, They had all been unpublished written, but unpublished. And uh, some of them are lectures as well. Um, and then there's a couple of critical articles, I think, that had been in some various publications. And they were edited by her, her friends, Sally and Robert Fitzgerald. Um, and they're, as, as, um, as Angelina said, they're about what it means to be a Christian artist, among, among other things. Um, there's a lot about what it means to be a fiction writer, uh, about teaching uh, literature to eighth graders, for example, about Southern Gothic literature, um, there's one essay called Nature and the Aim of Fiction, and then there's one called Writing Short Stories. So the essays in there are, are as Angelina said, they're, they're really incredible, and they touch on a lot of the things we talked about regarding Sayer's view on, on Christian art. They're very similar very perspective. Much, very much so. And I think very much so. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, as you're talking, the another area in which she profoundly affected me for, through Mystery and Manners was uh, I was a senior at this point, and I had made the decision that I was going to go to graduate school and I was going to pursue a career in literature. And here she was completely challenging everything I thought I knew about how to read literature, namely that she was so against this analysis right mm-hmm. and i was so i was so good at it i was so good at the slicing and dicing i remember i remember being offended and angry with her when i mm-hmm. read those those essays but but she stuck in my brain i mean just like you know like a pebble in the shoe i couldn't get rid of it you know and she just kept working on me and working on me till i finally ended up saying okay fine Flannery, you're right <laughs> you know a, a story is not a problem to be solved mm-hmm. so she and yeah he- she was profoundly influential on me do you think that you tacitly thought that a problem, that a story was a problem to be solved before you I think you I her? absolutely thought that. I think I absolutely thought that. And I thought I was good at solving the problem. And one of the reasons I thought that is because I could churn out a literature paper that was really good, you know, on some an analytical thing. Like I could, I could, there, she's got this essay where she talks about how people think that uh, finding the theme in literature is like picking up a piece of chicken wire outside, and, and if you just pick it up, the whole thing will pop up and you can see it. And she says that's hmm. not what it is, but that's what I was so good at doing. Hmm. <laughs> and I was getting praised for that, and I was getting a career, and I was winning awards on doing that. And here she was saying, uh, honey, you're doing it all wrong. Hmm. But hmm. she was totally right. She was totally right. Hmm. So, Tim um... – you know, by now O'Connor has something of a. She's got something of a cult following, to say the least. Um, she's kind of she's kind of a folk hero for a lot of uh, literature lovers, especially anyone who mm-hmm. loves Southern literature, uh, specifically, or even Gothic literature more broadly. So, where was your first introduction to her? Was it in college as well? I I can't remember if it was high school or college. I want to say that. I'm pretty sure that I read A Good Man Is Hard to Find in college. I know that I read um, the story that we're discussing today, Everything That Rises Must Converge, either in high school or in college. I want to think in high school. I just can't remember, to be honest. Mm -hmm. My biggest experience with Flannery O'Connor was actually 
much later without going into my whole life story. I went when I was 27 <laughs> to Europe for a few months. And when I was there, I just, it, it was my first prolonged time in a culture that was completely foreign to me. Mm-hmm. And it caused, it just really shook me up spiritually in mm-hmm. good, really good ways. And when I came back to the United States, I kind of, my faith had been kind of stripped bare. And I was like, okay, I am building from the ground floor again. And I know that I follow Jesus Christ and about everything else I'm not that sure about. And the formative experience for me coming back to the United States was I had a group of friends that would do a book reading group. And um, one of my friends was Christina, now Bieber Lake. She was doing her PhD in the women's studies department at Emory. And she, her, her work was on Flannery O'Connor. That's what her PhD work was on. And Chris and I had so many conversations about Flannery O'Connor. And I was reading her short stories and I was reading Chris's um, dissertation work and I was kind of going back and forth and we would have discussion groups. And so Flannery O'Connor in so many ways is sort of was really formative for me as an adult a faithful adult, really formative hmm. in ways that if, if I like had to articulate it, I'm not sure that I could. Um, but one of the big ways, and hopefully this is something that we'll talk about when we get a little deeper into the stories, or maybe mm-hmm. even at the end of this story mm-hmm. is her embrace of the physical aspect of our being. She mm-hmm. over and over and over, she's, she's against what she sees as, um, Protestant Manichaeism, and I'm and I want to just mention this from the get go because um, at Gutenberg we've been reading the about the development of Christianity in the Roman era, and specifically I was reading Augustine last week with my students, and, a, and part of Augustine becoming a Christian is him leaving Manichaeism. He moves from Manichaeism to Platonism to Christianity. So Manichaeism, like Platonism in some ways, has this sort of real suspicion of the physical world. And Flannery O'Connor would say that the Southern Christian culture that she inhabited also was pretty suspicious of that, the physical aspect of the faith. I mean, even the Eucharist for a Catholic, it's not just a memorial. It's the, it's the actual substance of Christ. Um, and that's a massive, that conviction shows up in the violence that her main characters endure over and over. It's not just a spiritual or mental violence. If anything, they've got to get over that spiritual, mental um, obstacles. Mm-hmm. And the way that that happens is through undergoing physical trauma, pain. So I'm reading uh, Rod Dreher's new book on the Benedict Option because I'm going to be interviewing him. And he has this really interesting summary in one of the early chapters basically of how we've gotten to the place that we're in now culturally. 
Um, and he's responding to, you know, Alistair McIntyre's uh, mm-hmm. book, uh, After, After, Vir- Virtue. After, After Virtue. After Virtue. Yeah, yeah. And he talks about, and he's also responding to some work by Charles Taylor. And so he's he's talking about how in the Middle Ages, um, Christians in the Middle Ages uh, re- viewed the world and what he described, and, I, and you know, I, this might be a Taylor phrase, but um, as metaphysical, metaphysical realism. So hmm. where where the, the the world we live in and the spiritual world like the difference between them is very thin that 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 they're that they're tied together and um and then he talks about how after that with with Occam and nominalism and then on into the reformation that kind of that kind of split and then the renaissance and the reformation you have you know a lot you have a, the emphasis um like a pre-scientific scientific revolution emphasis on uh the natural world as being separate from the spiritual world. Mm. And so O'Connor um, is almost like in many ways, a medieval Catholic rather than yeah. mm-hmm. like a modern yeah. Catholic where she believes that that layer between the spiritual world and the physical world that we live in is very thin. If there's a layer, if there's a difference at all. And I, right. and I was, so I was struck by, by that. So in a way you could, we could call her a metaphysical realist. Uh, I think that's a that great phrase. label. She I would think, probably really like that. She hated Southern so. Gothic as a term. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I'm sure we'll get into that sometime over these next several weeks. But, okay, let's get into uh, this. No, I actually love that you say that because while Tim was talking, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking to myself, this is that medieval understanding of the sacramental view of reality and nature. Right. And so I love that you said she's kind of a medieval, uh, you know, Catholic because I think that there really is something to that. She's constantly trying to pull back the veil and show us, the, you know, the spiritual that's just right under the surface of the physical, right? It's just it's all right there. And and of course, and over, go ahead, David. No, no, no. You first. Go ahead. Over and over, the bridge from like Julian's predicament or even his mother's predicament, the thing that wakes them up is not just an intellectual um, change. Something awful, something mm-hmm. physical mm-hmm. and awful happens. Right. Yeah. If if there are any patterns in her mature stories, that's for me, probably the most common one, a physical, oh, some sort of violence that leads to a moment of grace and a, and a change. We don't always get to see the results of the change, but the change begins after a moment of violence. Right. And that's the way she talks about it in Mystery and, and Manners, right? That these, these moments of violence is what brings about the, the, the moment of change, the choice of change. I mean, it was it was grace for her was always you know, focused on the free will and these characters can either accept this moment of grace mm-hmm. or, or reject it. But, um, and I totally and, lost where I was going with this. Well, now. go ahead. The, the, the common phrase you'll hear with related to Flannery O'Connor is the idea of dark grace. And yes. And so that moment, you know, that, that in the darkest moment, there is some kind of a grace shining through. And we talked about that back when we recorded a podcast about, right. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, um, a good, man, a good hard, man. Yeah, a good man is hard to find. And at one thing that I think is is worth noting is when you think about it, she was definitely a devout Catholic, um, and she was a medieval medieval Catholic, and she was, you know, she was responding to a different, or she was trying to promote a different sort of Catholicism than the kind of Catholicism that say the Reformation was trying to reinvent, right? So by the time yes. by the time you have the Reformation, you have Luther responding to the church. That was a that was a, a Catholic church that had been changed by by the Renaissance and by nominalism, and it was a much more um, hedonistic 
church than what you would have had in the early Middle Ages. And so, she, so I think a lot of people, when you have you have kind of underlying in her stories this tension between Southern Protestantism and the Catholicism that she was um, committed to. Yes, and, yes, and in that sense, you almost you really you have my my favorite my favorite dichotomy to talk about modern literature you have mod- modernity versus a medieval perspective yes, that's totally, that's what's yep. going on in these books yep and it's and so that was why i say it's not the it's not a it's not a you know this is not a 20th century catholic it's this is not an f scott fitzgerald catholicism um that that she's trying to promote in the midst of this this world of southern protestants she's looking at both the protestants and the catholics and saying and kind of i don't i'm going to use this word loosely she's judging them and she's mm-hmm. finding them wanting and she's suggesting that this sense of metaphys- metaphysical realism i'm going to use that term because i really like it is is truer to the christian faith at large than anything that they're practicing yes yes and okay so now i have remembered where i was going with that statement the in the middle ages there was this understanding that suffering and pain is the means by which one can achieve wisdom and not Mm -hmm. just wisdom but self-knowledge and i think that really is at the heart of almost all these books right some moment of suffering and pain is the thing that will lead you to self-knowledge you can finally you can finally see yourself and you know in one sense Flannery O'Connor is almost like a classical writer because she structures her stories on that that reversal, right? The reversal mm-hmm. and the recognition. But the difference is that in a classical story, the recognition is always somebody else can see you for who you are, right? So when Odysseus is revealed, huh. yeah, everyone that, can yep. now see. Yep. This yep. is Odysseus. But in her stories, it's self-recognition. Mm-hmm. Everybody else has been seeing Julian for who he is in this story. But now, mm. now the question is, can, is he going to see himself? That's, mm. that's where the reversal is. So, yeah, she's, she's great. This story was great. In some ways, I kind of wish that Greenleaf is the first one in this collection because I think Greenleaf re- really reveals this in a more obvious way than everything that rises. Uh-huh. So that's, mm. that's a really interesting one. Um, that's the next one we'll read. And it's one of my, it's one of my favorites to teach. It's the first Flannery O'Connor that I always teach when I teach her. Um, so I sort of wish we could have done it first, but let's, let's jump right into the story then. So we talk about that for the rest of our time together. Cause we're, let's do it. we're quickly talking good. overview. I super enjoyed it. Um, the story. Yeah. So Tim, it, there's not much plot. It's not a plot heavy story, but could you summarize right. roughly speaking for those who may have read it, but it has been a while and they're joining us anyway, because I think we're going to get some, some listeners who maybe have been waiting to listen to the murder must advertise or Wind in the Willows or whatever until they have time to read that whole book. Whereas this, it only takes 15, 20 minutes to read the story. Or if you've read it before, you can jump right in. So I'm sure there'll be people who are listening that need a quick, uh, just a quick refresher. So can you offer that? Yeah. uh, The story has got, at the beginning, two protagonists. Julian, who's a young man who just graduated from college, uh, who's living, is he, are they living in Georgia or is it even named? They're living in the South somewhere at least. Yeah, I don't think it's named. Some decaying um, neighborhood. And his mother and Julian has kind of pledged now that he's moved home from college to take his mother to a reduction class at the YMCA. And a reduction class is just a weight loss class. They are, it sounds like, kind of fallen from grace, formerly Southern aristocrats. Uh, they're... Julian's great-grandfather used to be the governor of Georgia, but now their neighborhood is kind of run down, and it seems like they are kind of reeling a little bit with having lost their place in the world. 
there's a conflict between Julian and his mother from the beginning, and it's over blacks who are living in the South. Julian has what he thinks of as a very kind of enlightened view. He's um, progressive. He's oh, a totally. progressive, he thinks. She nails and, it, man. <laughs> yeah. Julian's mother, to his mind, is a little bit backwards with regards to race relations, and they bicker during the entire trip to the Y over these various um, slights that Julian perceives his mother giving to black people. She says something pretty racist on the bus when it's only whites that are on the bus. Looks like it's, I can't, what's the line that she says? Do you guys remember? Looks like it's only us this time or something like mm-hmm. that. We have the bus to ourselves. We have the bus like to that. ourselves, yeah. Um, the plot rises and converges when uh, <laughs> Black Mother and her son... Tim is really trying to wax poetic today. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Get, they're on the bus. Julian really sees this as an opportunity to identify um, with the Black Mother and her child. Julian's mother... Kind and of to teach his mom a lesson. Yes. And to teach his mom a lesson. He's all about teaching his mother a lesson. Which, honest, as a side note, he's completely reliant upon his mother's home, her good graces. Yep. She's the one who's helped provide him through college. So he's totally reliant on her, and he's also embarrassed about her and just wants to teach her lessons. Uh, the plot climaxes when the black mother and her child and Julian and his mother exit the bus and Julian's mother decides that she is going to condescendingly give a nickel, she doesn't have it, a penny to the young black boy and the mother recognizes that this is a like horrible condescension and she just whacks Julian's mother knocks Julian to the ground knocks Julian's mother to the ground and then it looks like Julian's mother is has some sort of a stroke and Julian recognizes he has this moment where he sees his mother and he is terrified of losing her mm-hmm. while she's going when she's going into this stroke that appears but he has previously wished to himself i wish i could give her a stroke yes right but now he's absolutely he does an exact reverse and is terrified and the story closes with him desperately seeking help uh for his mother in her medical like extreme medical state so there are a lot of questions that i think we could we could address in this i we i really want to talk about the idea of uh, Julian's mother giving this little boy the co- the coin because there's a lot of debate about whether or not she is actually being condescending. Mm. Um, because obviously from Julian's perspective, it's, it's condescending, but, but some, some writers don't think that O'Connor meant for her to be condescending at all. Um, I didn't read it that way. Sally Fitzgerald doesn't read it that way. So let's talk about that in a minute. But first, what I want to ask you is, Let's let's go back to the age old passages thing. I'd love for you each to give a passage that you that you loved that you think really stands out. Oh man, I should have done this. The good thing is I can always cut cut out the time while we're sitting around looking for it. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Okay. Let's see. So I've got one. Do it, David. 
Okay, so uh, it's in my in the in the FSG or, uh, collection. It's page eleven. Um, it's a couple pages into the story. It begins uh, behind the newspaper. So they're on the bus. Oh yes. Um, and they're on the bus, and the mom's been bragging about him, and she says, "I tell him his mother said that Rome wasn't built in a day." And then O'Connor writes, "Behind the newspaper, Julian was withdrawing into the inner compartment of his mind, where he spent most of his time." So this is a, <laughs> and this is a very modern thing, right? So this is that idea mm-hmm. of like separating. He's a very he's very intellectual. It's like this is like someone who has been influenced by the Enlightenment. <laughs> Yes. Uh, this was a kind of mental bubble in which he established himself when he could not bear to be a part of what was going on around him. So again, the separation, right? Uh, mm-hmm. From it, he could see out and judge, but in it, he was safe from any kind of penetration from without. It was the only place where he felt free of the general idiocy of his fellows. His mother had... <laughs> his, see, uh, see, okay, I'm telling you, this is the, this is, she's funny. O'Connor is funny. She's very funny. Oh, she's totally funny. His mother had never entered it. But from it, he could see her with absolute clarity. The old lady was so. Then now we're getting into his mind, right? This is just where he's he. We're getting he he, he knows everything, right? He he sees yes. through her. The old lady was never was clever enough, and he thought that if she had started from any of the right premises, more might have been expected of her. She lived according to the laws of her own fantasy world, outside of which he had never seen her set foot. The law of it was to sacrifice herself for him after she had first created the necessity to do so by making a mess of things. If he had permitted her sacrifices, it was only because her lack of foresight had made them necessary. All of her life had been a struggle to act like a Chesney without the Chesney goods and to give him everything she thought a Chesney ought to have. But since, said she, it was fun to struggle, why complain? And when you had won as she had won, what fun to look back on the hard times. He could not forgive her that she had enjoyed the struggle and that she thought she had won. So one thing I like about this is this um, this part where it says um, she lived according to the laws of her own fantasy world, outside of which she had never, uh, outside of which he had never seen her set foot. The law of it was to sacrifice herself for him after she had first created the necessity to do so by making a mess of things. And I love this because it's obviously we get his his condescension towards her, right? So he judges her for being condescending later, but really he's the one who's condescending. Um, mm-hmm. But he gives himself permission to be that way because, and he gives himself permission to, to, um, it lets him off the hook basically because she screwed up. He can depend on her. He can rely on her and it lets him off the hook right. because she screwed it up. He doesn't, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to actually question himself. Like he doesn't have to do any self reflection because he has a moral high ground. He's self congratulatory. And he gives himself yeah. permission to be that because of the way she screwed things up over the years. And O'Connor doesn't even need to give us details about that for it to still make sense. No, I love her use of, of this ironic undercutting the whole way through to show us that Julian's the real racist. Julius is the real judgmental snob. Uh, and while he deceives himself that he's not that way. I mean, it's just hilarious, some of the, some of the things, right? Like, um, he is so upset with her for talking about, you know, we know who we are and where we came from. And, and, and so he has all that like negative stuff right. to say about it while he secretly daydreams about it and longs for it. And, you know, he, he's just as much in that, but he despises it about himself in this weird way. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's really, she really gets at that sort of uh, schizophrenia in the mind of a progressive, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, I, 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 you know, I hate myself for being a privileged white person, but I also am really glad I'm a privileged white person because from this place of privilege, I can condemn all you other privileged white people. You know, it's just we're like we go on this merry-go-round, right? Um, but I, I want I wrote LOL in the margin when she said, uh, when he's imagining, oh, I wish I, I wish I could give my mother a stroke. Like I'm going to bring home a beautiful black girlfriend or my friend, the black lawyer. And then he says, mm. but I've never been very good at making friends with black people. <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, it just gets right at the heart of it, right? He loves the idea of the black man, but he actually can't connect with one well, of them. And, and you know what's interesting is I think that it's true that she is, she is, she essentially has bought into the institutional racism of her time, right? So that that's true. She and she, the, the mother, Julian's mother, the mother has, yeah, yeah, it's true, and it is true that he is making an attempt to to not buy into that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it is those things are um, are are true, but there's com- it's complex because she is also more kind than he is to them. And he judges yes. them in a way that she never would. Um, he, and it's like, well, it's, he doesn't, I don't feel like he sees them as humans. They're pawns. Well, right? exactly. Every time a black person comes on the bus, Oh, I can use you for this end. I can teach my mother this lesson because of you. So, and, and you know, he's so, and the fact that he's so hyper aware, Oh, a black person is going to sit next to me. See mom, see how I can sit next to a black person. I mean, this is, this is not someone who's perceiving the common humanity of the person sitting next to them. So in Ralph Wood's book, uh, Flannery O'Connor on the Christ of the South, he talks about that. And, um, he, I want to read this passage that I marked, uh, cause I, I thought this is, this is kind of gets at the heart of his character. Um, so the guy gets on the bus and uh, Julian tries to sit next to him, right? And tries to make friends with him, but the guy wants nothing to do with him. <laughs> so it's uh, Ralph Wood writes, uh, s- uh, so he instantly penetrates his new friend's pretense, seeing that Julian wants to use him as a means for practicing his own moral hygiene. Julian is so obsessed with casting out the, raci- the racist moat in his mother's eye that he remains blind to the beam-like presumption and ingratitude that afflicted his own vision. Julian can love the anonymous whom he does not know, but not the mother whom he does know and who also knows him. And then he talks uh, a page later about how, let's see if I can find it. That's in, in, good. That's really good. Yeah. He says in the name of an abstract justice meant for people he does not really know or care about. Julian has denied the most fundamental of all loves, the filial love of the, uh, for the mother who has not only given him birth and nourished his youth, but who has also sustained his feckless adult life as considerable sacrifice. And he talks a little bit further about how um, his mother looks at um, the at black people as a race. Like he, she looks at them, the race as a negative thing, right? Or she judges them. I don't know if I would even say that she views them as negative. She looks down on them in this way that institutional racism kind of did, right? But she also can actually look at this little boy as a human, right? And she can look and at her this, and and Caroline, right? And and that's and then yeah, Caroline. Whereas he can't look at any of them as actual individual people. But there's this abstract idea that we need to, that they need to be treated as equal people, but he can't mm. view them as individuals. And so what that gets at yes. what what Ralph was getting at is that. This story isn't so much about one person being better or worse than the other because these these issues are so complicated and that that complexity 
is the um, stuff of truth and thus of fiction, as Ralph Wood puts it. And that's what O'Connor gets at, like, throughout mm-hmm. all of her fiction, that these yeah, things are never this... simple. Right. I don't think this story is about civil rights. I think this is about the story is about self-righteous moderns. And actually, as you or were just talking, self-righteousness. Just self-righteousness, yes, which that's always the worst sin in a Flannery O'Connor story. Self-righteousness is the worst sin. Um, but I, as you were reading that, I kept thinking about Tim's earlier remarks, right? Like that really gets at the heart of it, that that moderns like disembodied ideas. We like abstraction. So in other words, yeah. I love women and I fight for the rights of women, but I hate my mother and I'm really I'm mm. going to be mean to her this morning, right? That's 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 the heart of the of the paradox of modernity that we struggle so much of, of being in love with abstractions but not incarnations, right? Mm. Tim, do you have a passage? I do, and it'll be kind of the um, opposite side. It's, it's from the middle of the story, and it's one of the occasions where O'Connor it seems narratively to be a little bit closer to the mother. She seems like she's more close to Julian throughout the most of the um, story. So this is about halfway through the story um, when the mother is trying on the hat, after she's been trying on the hat, excuse me. The mother is talking about Julian. She she excused me. She excused his gloominess on the ground that he was still growing up and his radical ideas on his lack of practical experience. She said... He didn't yet know a thing about life, that he hadn't even entered the real world, when already he was as disenchanted as a man of 50. This is, this is a... Having this... Um, a young person who has had some level of college education and that college education has divorced him or her from his Southern family and surroundings in, in a philosophical way is also a fairly recurrent theme in her short stories. Have you guys read uh, good country people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, a, the enduring chill is another one in good country people. Uh, there's a young woman named joy who has a club foot and she has taken some philosophy classes, I think at a local community college. And she is so abstracted from who she is, where she comes from, and even her own body, especially the lameness of her leg, that she decides that she's going to rename herself. Like who does this? (laughs) She's going to rename herself instead of joy. She's going to rename herself Hulga. And there's a there's an occasion in which Joy Holga's mother picks up one of her philosophy books and reads it. And I think it's Heidegger that she reads. And it includes this little section from Heidegger that is just inscrutable, absolutely inscrutable, even probably to a Heidegger scholar. And <laughs> probably to Heidegger. Probably to Heidegger, <laughs> right. And I think there's something I, I wonder if I wonder if Flannery O'Connor was writing, um, was teaching herself because, I mean, in some ways, she fits the bill. She is like Joy Holga, or she is like Julian in some ways. She had more education than her mother. Oh, she left um, town, right? She left she went town. North. Absolutely. And 
the recurring character like this, I just wonder if Flannery kind of was like reminding herself she did not want to be Julian. She did not want to be Joy Holga, but I'm sure it was a terrific temptation for her. You know, she was that's reliant a, upon great, her mother. That's, that's a great point. I was, one of the things Sally Fitzgerald said, and in, in, I read the introductions to all of the different Flannery O'Connor books I have, so I read quite a few introductions, and one of them was by Sally Fitzgerald, and and she talked about how, um, you know, most of these stories, it looks at the beginning like she's coming down really heavy on the old guard, right, the old mm. passing culture of, of the South, but that doesn't mean that she throws herself in with the young guy, right? It's not like the young guy, the modern guy is the hope for the future. She's, there's just a lot of ambivalence there about, you know, the young, the modern yeah. guy's got his own set of problems, and uh, she's an equal opportunity judger. Sally Fitzgerald says something like yeah. that, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. Everybody's going to get it. You know, she went away in her she went away to college and then she was pretty recognized pretty early that she was a gifted writer. And so she went to the Iowa writers workshop in uh, the university of Iowa, which is kind of the, you know, preeminent the pinnacle. Yeah. The, yeah. It's the pinnacle. Like um, they get, they let in very few people and thousands of people apply every year. Ma- Marilyn Robinson's an instructor there. And then she went on to something in New York, upstate New York for a year. And so she was around, you know, Carson McCullers and all these, you know, people that went on to be the these super important oh, writers yes. for a day. Robert Penn Warren and yep. Robert Lowell and Caroline Gordon and Alan Tate. I mean, she was yep. like in the who's who. <clears throat> and but then she got sick, you know, she yes. and her mm-hmm. she got sick with the same disease that killed her father. Um and it ended up killing her at 39 and and she she goes she has to go home because of it and she has, she basically takes care of her mother. And it, it, it sometimes I wonder if you know she, it's both a reminder to herself, but also, um, it's also looking at her. She's recognizing that getting to go home, getting sick, and going home was kind of that moment of grace, that dark grace in her life that that opened her eyes. And so she's always very sympathetic to the place, um, and sort of judgy. You know, she judges the the people who go away and are forced to come back and don't like it. But she also was, her eyes were also open enough to recognize the flaws of the people who she was surrounded by in Milledgeville, Georgia, you know? Um, mm. She she wouldn't let, she basically told her friends when they came to town, don't talk to my mother about race. Because her mother was kind of just like Julian's mother. That was She was a essentially, you know, sucked into the institutional racism of 1940s, Georgia, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. her mother also was the kind of person who would she there's a story that that is in the um the Ralph Wood book that she would go take care of sick people you know sick African American people who were she would do things she would give them baths and she would do things that no one else would do even though she, the way she spoke about them in public was often not consistent with that and so again that's the complexity it seems like that she she, had, she as you said she was the equal opportunity judge but she also had her eyes open to those complexities and she didn't she was sympathetic with both sides i think because she had yes. both experiences right right yes yes i think that's exactly i think you're exactly right that's why it, it feels so complicated when when you when you read her and i love that you said that her own illness was a was a moment of dark grace because when i was reading the sally fitzgerald 
uh, introduction, that same thing struck me, right? Like, so she, she starts off writing wise blood when she's living in the North and she's healthy and she's, she can't finish it, right? It's taking years. She's revising it to pieces and she can't finish it. And then she gets sick. And now her father only lived three years after his initial diagnosis. So she thought she would be dead at the end of three years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Sally Fitzgerald says that, uh, under that intense pressure of basically what she thinks is her death sentence, she grows as a writer tremendously, and in, and in exactly that three years finishes the nine short stories for her for her first collection. And I was just left wondering, you know, like my gut feeling when I hear like somebody like Flannery O'Connor's story, you know, where you just think, oh, so tragic, right? That this great talent was struck ill and she dies young, and I always think of it as this tremendous loss. But I thought, no, this is challenging that, right? Like. Yeah. Maybe maybe the illness is the gift. Maybe she produces things under the illness that she never would have been able to produce otherwise. Mm. So maybe it's not a great life cut short, but maybe it's a life made great by the suffering, which, I mean, man, if that doesn't come through in her writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, just as a side note, one of my heroes, Soren Kierkegaard, believed he was under a death sentence. And from age, and he thought he was going to die, I, can't, I think it was at 33, he expected he was going to die. Between age 30 and 33, he wrote five books. Three are considered like all-time philosophical classics. In three years, and they are not small books. These are thick. Is that, is that when he wrote either, either or and stuff? I think it's actually after either or. Okay. So how long did he end up living? Until 42. He died young also, but um, he outlived. He thought their family thought that he was under, that their whole family was under a curse because of his father's misdeeds and that none of them would outlive the age of Jesus's death. Huh. How'd you like that hanging over you? Huh. Classic Southern guilt. <laughs> transferred to, to Denmark. Well, you know what? You know. Hey, let's let's talk about this. This we have a lot of time left. We've, but I do want to talk about the coin. Mm. Oh, and I. Oh, can I just say one yeah, thing? Because I I want to make sure section? that I, I I say this. Well, I have a section, but I also wanted to talk about the title because I have a little note about this. Yeah, it comes so, from Flannery a French Potter, writer, right? Yes, a French Jesuit writer named Teilhard de Chardin, and Flannery O'Connor was reading him. And so in this book that she was reading, he talks about the rising is when we experience this spiritual enlightenment, this enlightenment that opens us up to God's reality. Mm -hmm. And then once you have experienced the rising, then we can converge, meaning we can come together. Hmm. Hmm. So, so, so the rising took that leads line to unity. From that book. Right. Which is interesting then in a story about civil rights and the fact that they're not coming together mm. and it ends with his personal opportunity for rising. She seems to be suggesting the only way that we can converge is if we all individually rise. Hmm. Okay, so there you go. That was my hmm. little that was my little footnote about the title. Well no, that's that's interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the, the coin. This is a pretty simple question here, I think. At least to start the conversation. Do you think that his mother was wrong to give the boy the coin? I do not. I do. Okay. Tim, you go first then. 
David's it, loving this. He didn't even. This isn't even pre-planned. We're on yeah. other side. Let's go. I would have just gone with whatever the opposite was if you both said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this will be a true disagreement. <laughs> it's true. Okay, and Tim, you said earlier you thought it was condescending. So should yeah. you say no? She should not have. And I assume basically the premise is your thesis is because it was condescending. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so go on. I, Explain that. I just. I tried to imagine if um, Julian's mother would have done this if it were a young white boy. And I kind of think maybe she would have given him a piece of candy. I don't think she would have given him money. I, I may be wrong, but I just – it's hard for me to divorce what that action would look like today. And that's um, – maybe that's a shortcoming in my own kind of hermeneutic is that if I think about this event happening today, I just think, oh, no, just don't do that. Do not do that. Um, and I just thought she, she, oh. The argument against my contention is that Julian says that his mother did not view children as black or white, but they were all under the kind of general rubric of cute. That'd be the strongest argument, I think, against my viewpoint. But I just think giving money to a young black boy, um, especially in front of his own mother, and the black mother's response to it, she does not read it neutrally. She does not read it as like, oh, that's a kind gift. Thank you for being kind to my child. She absolutely reads it as a condescension. And I fail to think that Julian's mother was that unaware uh, that uh, that it meant something more than just giving an innocent gift. Okay, Angelina. Okay, so Sally Fitzgerald, I love it. I love Tim just set this up perfectly, right? So Tim says, I can't believe she could possibly be this naive that she doesn't know. So Sally Fitzgerald calls her incorrigibly naive. And, that, and, and she thinks the woman absolutely had no idea. And, and, and she even says she would have given the money to a white child as well. Mm. It's just and, – and I think that the context for this is that she plays with him delightfully on the bus. In fact, mm -hmm. and I love this, Julian is irritated by the fact that his mother is having this common humanity moment with this child and just engaging happily with the child instead of learning the great lesson that he wishes she would make. Um, in fact, the fact that she's not mad – that the black woman is wearing the same hat as her and well, she laughs about it. Yes. That's a really important point. Where is that? Um, that was actually my passage that I had marked. Um, go, go ahead and read that then. Okay. The vision of the two hats identical broke upon him with the radiance of a brilliant sunrise. His face was suddenly lit with joy. He could not believe that fate had thrust upon his mother such a lesson. He gave a loud chuckle so that she would look at him and see that he saw. She turned her eyes on him slowly. The blue in them seemed to have turned a bruised purple. For a moment, he had an uncomfortable sense of her innocence, but it lasted only a second before Principal rescued him. Justice entitled him to laugh. His grin hardened until it said to her as plainly as if he were saying aloud, your punishment exactly fits your pettiness. This should teach you a permanent lesson. <laughs> her eyes shifted to the woman. She seemed unable to bear looking at him and to find the woman preferable. He became conscious again of the bristling presence at his side. The woman was rumbling like a volcano about to become active. His mother's mouth began to twitch slightly at one corner. 
With a sinking heart, he saw incipient signs of recovery on her face and realized that this was going to strike her suddenly as funny and was going to be no lesson at all. <laughs> and then she does. She smiles and laughs, and then she just plays with the little boy. Yeah, I think... So, uh, I yeah, think kind of, Well, I just think implicit in what's going on there is that she stops... She realizes that she is no longer above this mm. woman as she had thought because when you remember the part at the beginning yes <laughs> i'm not going to see myself coming and going in this hat right she and she's that twice her right and she so she wants to have a hat that's going to show that she's higher class and that that's what they sell it on right that, that somebody not every not just anybody would be able to get it and so then she realizes that's not true and so like that that wall her own pride is kind of broken down and so she then literally makes contact with them in a way that she wouldn't have done otherwise because she literally wanted to sit on the other side of the bus and so in making contact, it breaks down that kind of uh, she's breaking down that kind of mental barrier within herself, or at least that judgmental barrier, perhaps. And I'm not saying that she's overcome her, you know, racism or whatever, but she is she is approaching them with a humility that even Julian can't approach them with. Right. And I like what Sally Fitzgerald says about her being super naive. So I think that. Right. I think right. she doesn't yeah. realize that that the offer of the shiny penny is going to be insulting. Right. Or be perceived as insulting. And she doesn't listen to Julian when he tries to say no, of course. Although honestly, who would listen to him? He's been such a jerk. <laughs> okay, so then here's the follow-up question to this. Um whether or not you believe uh, it was the right thing for the mother to do and you know, everyone can kind of decide that for themselves as how based on how they read it. Um do you think that the boy's mother was wrong to respond the way she did? Tim, what do you think? Violence is never the answer, David, even, <laughs> though, it is, even though it is the answer in Flannery O'Connor's stories. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 if the mother was convinced that Julian's mother was being condescending, I think it would have been good for her to give Julian's mother a piece of her mind. Um, but smacking her with her purse. Isn't that what happened? She smacks her with her purse. You know, I was unsure. But I thought at first that's what was happening, but then it said a fist behind the purse. So did oh. she punch her? Who knows? Well, she, what do you think? She strikes her somehow. I've got to go back and reread yeah, that. Yeah. There's definitely a blow of some kind that causes yeah. She gives her a stroke, though. So, I mean, it's not. It's clearly. It's not a love <laughs> tap. It's intense. Whatever just happened yeah. was very intense. And but also with O'Connor, it's never just whatever happened. Like there's something deeper oh, no, going on. Yeah, so it right. wouldn't. It, she could have. She could have pointed at her, and the same thing could have essentially effectively happened. Because it's a because again the physical and the spiritual world. There's not that barrier there. So whatever's happening all is You're always right. laden with spiritual meaning. Um, so she could have pointed. And, and of course, Julian's response is as she's sitting there having this stroke, right? Well, you deserved it. You got what you deserved. Mm-hmm. Right. So he, he has what he thinks is the moment he's been wanting all, all evening, right? She got her lesson. Now, in the end, it's going to turn out that it's him who got the lesson. But do you think do you think that it ends ambiguously about whether or not he's going to receive the moment of grace? Well, let's read it. He's running, right? I mean, I, I just I'm, found the passage where the oh, where she hits her woman swings on Julian's mother. Um, 
Then all at once she seemed to explode like a piece of machinery that had been given one ounce of pressure too much. Julian saw the black fist swing out with the red pocketbook. He shut his eyes and cringed as he heard the woman shout, he don't take nobody's pennies. Black all right. The fist is probably that she's holding on. She's, so she's probably holding the purse and swings the purse. Interesting, though, our primary character, whose point of view we're seeing it all from, closes his eyes. Mm-hmm. So, we don't, <laughs> so we, we don't actually see the moment of contact. And then next thing you know, she's when he opens his eyes, she's gone. The woman yeah. was disappearing down the street with the little boy staring wide-eyed over her shoulder. And Julian's mother was sitting on the sidewalk. He stood over her for a minute, gritting his teeth. Her legs were stretched out in front of her and her hat was on her lap. He squatted down and looked her in the face. It was totally expressionless. You got exactly mm. what you deserved, he said. Now get up. And then he picks up the pocketbook and what had fallen out and picked up the hat. He takes all this stuff and held his hands out to pull her up, but she doesn't do anything. And then he sighs and like, you can see him like, come on, let's go. He's, you know, he's just getting angry. He's still hoping that she's getting the lesson. Right. Right. Oh, he's keeps lecturing her. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's trying to get her to go to the Y and she's like home. And then she, he says, aren't you going onto the Y? And she just says home. And then interestingly, that's the last she says home again later and that's the mm-hmm. last thing she says until she says tell grandpa to come get me tell carolyn mm-hmm. to come get me right right i mean so home this is heaven she's dying she's dead at the end of the story yeah, oh definitely there's no there's no doubts about that that's not that should not be confusing i don't think i mean i don't i mean you right. could read so it that she's way, dead but. the question is what has happened to julian i, I mean this is his moment of grace is it, ah, it's hard for me to know what to do with the end of this story. So he's running from it. Read the last paragraph. Just, wait here, wait here, he cried, and jumped up and began to run for help toward a cluster of lights he saw in the distance ahead of him. Help, help, he shouted, but his voice was thin, scarcely a thread of sound. The lights drifted farther away the faster he ran. Oh, man, that's wow. And his feet moved numbly as if they carried him nowhere. The tide of darkness seemed to sweep him back to her postponing from moment to moment his entry into the world of guilt and sorrow. So there's a lot of different metaphors that you could look at here. I mean, he, uh, no, right? he goes uh. towards the cluster of lights in the distance. So that's ob- there's obviously a lot of metaphor there. It's also just story. He's going to the city. Um, oh, but you can't say it's just story about Flannery. Come on. Well, I mean, she, just nothing. She, <laughs> she would say, you know, don't overread it, but then you also can't not read it. So... But then the tide of darkness seems to sweep him back to her, and and then of course postponing him from the moment to, from moment to moment his entry into the world of guilt and sorrow, and I I wonder if that's tied to the idea of redemption, I mean of uh, repentance. Well, that's what so I think too. So redemption and repentance it will are tied together. Depend on how he responds to the guilt and sorrow, right? He can either become embittered by it or he can become changed by it, and so I I mean I don't think she's showing us. I mean I. You're going to have to tell me if you if you think it's clear. I don't think it's clear. I think it's one of those stories where it just leaves you on the cliffhanger, leaves you with the moment of grace, and you don't know, is he going to accept it or not? What do you think, Tim? I think she very deliberately ends it before we know what his reaction is. And she does the exact same thing with the misfit. In A Good Man is Hard to Find. The misfit right? says yeah. we should have. She could have been a good woman. She just needed to be shot every day of her life. But whether or not 
there's a moment where the misfit and the grandmother, there's a connection there. Mm-hmm. And whether or not the misfit will change, that happens off screen. And I think whether or not Julian will change, it happens off screen. And my theory is that, of course, it's very deliberate. It, I think that it's O'Connor is now wanting us to put ourselves in the shoes of Julian. Yeah, yeah. And it's now our decision. Hmm. Hey, I want to. Can I read you another thing from this Ralph Wood thing because I think that speaks exactly to what you're saying, Tim. Yeah, that was yeah. really interesting. Go ahead. She, she he writes in the last paragraph of his chapter called "The Problem of the Color Line," which focuses on this story um, and the Enduring Chill, which is actually my favorite O'Connor story. Um, and by the way, go get this book if you can find it somewhere. It's really good. Um, so he writes, or send me one because I don't have it and it sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> he 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 reads this. So he he says at a at a depth as yet unplumbed, O'Connor understood the truth voiced by the slave Ishmael in Herman Melville's novel of 1851, Moby Dick. And then he quotes Moby Dick, and this is what it says. What, what of it if some old hunk of a sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks? What does that indignity amount to? Wait, I mean, you know, in the scales of the New Testament. Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. Well, then, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that all is, that, that, it is, that it is all right, that everybody else is one way or other served in much the same way, either in a physical or a metaphysical point of view, that is. And so the universal thump is passed round, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. And then this is Wood responding to that. O'Gon- O'Connor agreed that we are all slaves to evil that we all suffer considerable indignities from the unavoidable fact of our mortality, that the blows of fortune strike all and sundry alike, and that above all, the scales of the New Testament find both the righteous and the unrighteous woefully wanting. Yet she also knew that something other than than either shoulder-rubbing, solidarity, or legally enforced integration was needed for healing the racial wounds that continue to superate at the core of both the nation and the church. She was not resigned, therefore, to the... perpetual division of black and white into separate even if equal spheres um in her two most important stories with racial themes o'connor gestures at a more excellent way the way of reconciliation between brothers and sisters of the same lord so he he gets off into something else there that he touched on early in the chapter but the reflection but but it's that idea that if we're going to converge we have to rise first right and so that's what i think it's speaking to you know the idea that we are all slaves to evil that we all suffer consider, suffer considerable indignities from the unavoidable fact of our mortality and that the blows of fortune strike all and sundry alike speaks to what tim's saying there that it, it forces us to put ourselves mm. in those shoes and decide for ourselves whether we are going to respond to moments like like this even though they're not going to be likely as extreme yeah i think she just does that so frequently in her fiction that we that she ends like on a decision moment and the decision moment is not Mm -hmm. clarified. And I really do think it's because she is inviting the reader to take on that responsibility. I suspect that's what makes her short fiction so powerful and that it, you in a novel, the story continues, right? And so you have the next chapter. And so that just, that moment of decision gets resolved. And so in some way it's just moment of decision upon moment of decision. And that becomes a little, that wears you down a little bit and can be a little confusing. Yeah. But when you have this this full stop moment at the end of a short story where you're forced to reconcile within yourself what it means, just like Julian has to reconcile within himself what it means, you know, that that makes it, for a very powerful ending. 
Mm-hmm. If if our readers know um, the work of Walker Percy, who is a yeah. contemporary Southern Catholic writer of Flannery O'Connor, his novels goer. function the same. The moviegoer, um, Lancelot, The Last Gentleman, uh, A Second Coming, Last Gentleman, almost all of these books culminate with the main character facing a decision and Percy does not reconcile it. He does not say what the decision will be. And it's almost like this, his novels are almost long forwards for a crucial existential decision. Am I going to live my life according to these these spiritual convictions? Am I going to live my life according to these kind of materialistic convictions? Yeah, you should read Walker Percy. Yeah. Hey, so I'm really curious what our what our listeners thought of this story. You know, like you said, there was a lot of talk about how a good man is hard to find or wise blood. Those those are just really hard stories, and people struggled to make sense of them when they read it. And you know, having this, I don't get Flannery O'Connor moments. I'm curious what they thought about this story because to me, this story is a lot easier, more accessible, mm. not as dark. Just all the way around, a much easier story to handle. Yeah, I think this is a little bit more straightforward. Also, if if there are if there is such a thing as a straightforward Flannery O'Connor story, <laughs> it's really um, it's really common for you to see like critics and scholars say that the last thing you want to read first is a good man. It's hard to find. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think we even talked about that in the podcast we did. But hey, we have been recording for over eighty minutes, so this is going to be we're trying to set some kind of close reads record here. We're really, I think we're really taxing our listeners' patience here. So we should probably go ahead and, yeah. Tim, how about we blame Angelina for it? What do you say? Let's do that. (laughs) I mean, it's my my job to to keep us on track, but let's just blame Angelina anyway. Um, I'll take it. Thanks to everyone. I like believing I have that kind of power. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would ask for your final thoughts, but we don't have time. So. Uh, I don't have any final thoughts. Next week. Greenleaf next week. Yep, Greenleaf green, green next week. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Please feel free to leave your questions and comments over on the podcast page. We look forward to chatting with you about uh, everything that rises must converge specifically and Flannery O'Connor more generally over the next week. And with that, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Talk to you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.